scripture this morning will come from Matthew, the 19th chapter, verses 16 through 30. This morning, we begin a sermon series entitled Short Stories, Parables of Jesus. And uh, as we go through these stories for the next several weeks, and I have to confess to you that the first story that we're doing is really not so much a parable as, as it is an actual event that took place in Jesus' life. Uh, parables can be based on events, but usually there's a, a story that uh, unfolds and is constructed around that event that's designed for a specific teaching. This is a story of Jesus' encounter with a person that we have come to know as the rich young ruler. It appears in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we get the name for the parable or the story, the rich young ruler, really from all three, because in none of the three is the man identified as rich, as young, and as a ruler. Now, in each one, he's identified as rich, but in Mark's gospel, that's where we find that he's young. In Luke's gospel, that's where we find that he is a ruler, that he's a man of some power and influence beyond the fact that he has riches. I will also tell you that over my course of years in ministry now, and those uh, number around 30 years or so, this story, I have preached uh, from this story uh, sermons uh, more than any other story in the Bible. And going back through some of my notes this past week, what uh, surprised me, and perhaps will uh, please, please you, uh, is to know that each time that I have preached this uh, story, I've come at it from a different direction. Uh, I've gleaned new meaning in some way from it. It really is a story that unfolds in three acts. And so that uh, you are aware this morning... I will read the entire thing to you, but we'll deal primarily with the first part of the story and uh, with a little of the response that the disciples make. So, with that said, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother also. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away, grieving, for he had many possessions. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, this is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That is God's word for us this morning. The first thing that we need to to talk about is what motivated this young man to come to Jesus. And over the centuries and the countless numbers of sermons that have been preached on this particular story, usually the young man, the rich young man, doesn't fare too well. He's usually taken to task. He's usually uh, hammered for not doing what Jesus asked him to do. And for whatever his motivation might have been in coming to Jesus. Uh, Some have assumed that the person might have had uh, been, been overconfident, confident in all that he had already accomplished. Some have suggested that he had an ulterior motive in mind beyond the confidence that he had that he would be successful in, in receiving Jesus' blessing. That his ulterior, ulterior motive may have been to show Jesus up, to present himself as someone who perhaps was even better than the good teacher, the the, uh, flattering words that the young man spoke to Jesus. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the person came, the man, this young man, came with good intentions, with sincerity, but nonetheless very confident in what he had already done and seeking a word of affirmation, perhaps, about what he had already done. Confident in his good deeds, in his good works, in having followed most of the commandments. Someone after the first service said, uh, when you read those off, those weren't ten, were they? You know, as a good catch, you know, Jesus didn't uh, read or didn't uh, recount or recite to this person all ten commandments. The ones that he recites have to do with tangible things, personal relationships with other people, with family, uh, honesty in personal encounters. Uh, You remember the first commandment, you'll love God. With all your heart and all your mind, you'll have no other gods before you. First two commandments. 
those are never mentioned. Uh, not explicitly. But the commandments that are mentioned, this guy believes he's done, he's done what he needs to do. Confident in that. His good works, if you will. His good life that he had lived. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers in our country, was asked this question as he neared the end of his life. In very poor health, one of his good friends, Ezra Stiles, president of Yale University and also a Presbyterian minister, uh, approached Benjamin Franklin and asked him what he believed about Jesus, what his relationship with, with God was, what he Uh, whether he believed in Jesus. And Franklin was much surprised by the question. In fact, he replied to Ezra Stiles, you know, as long as I've lived, nobody's ever asked me that question before. I've never been asked what I believe about Jesus. But since you asked, here's what I believe. I believe in one God, Franklin said, creator of the universe, that he governs it by providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that most accept, that the most acceptable service we can render him is doing good to his other children. That the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting his conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has been received Uh, It has received various corrupting changes. And I have with most present dissenters in England some doubts as to his divinity. So what Franklin responded essentially is, I will trust that God will judge me according to the good deeds, the good works that have been so much a part of my life. As to the teachings of Jesus, I'm okay with that. As to the divinity, I have doubts. I'm okay with Jesus perhaps as Lord, to paraphrase a little bit, but not real sure about this Son of God thing. Have doubts about that. Well, we don't know where the young man stood in terms of who he thought Jesus was. But he thought enough of him to approach and ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the answer is, we've just, indicated, just talked about, the answer that Jesus gave pleased the man initially. But then he pursues the conversation. What must I do? And here's a lesson, I think, to be learned in the asking of that question, what must I do? Are you prepared, when asking the question, are you prepared for the answer that you'll receive? 
the rich young man hears the word, just one more thing. And we have tended to focus that the one more thing is giving away all that you have. That's all you have to do, another good work. But what Jesus is really asking him to do is to follow. What he asked him to do is to get rid of anything that prevents this man from following. Any notion of his own goodness or that his own good deeds or another good deed would be enough. That he could ring the bell, that he crossed the finish line. The question wasn't whether uh, the young man would give away everything that he had or the instruction. The demand was follow me. And the obstacle that this man had was that which he owned. But that is not the only option or obstacle that keeps us and prevents us from following Jesus. It can be our treasuring of our own time. I don't want to be asked to do this because I need some time for myself. I need to protect my time. I don't want to be asked for, to do this because it might influence what happens in my career. I don't want to be asked to do this because it may, it may be that my devotion to family is such that I can't commit to what Jesus is asking me to do. I had a man years ago before I ever went in ministry. He said this in a Sunday school class. We were studying this, this, this very story and he's talking and he said relative to his career. I can't do the things that Jesus, I'm fine with Jesus. Follow the, you know, try to follow the commandments. I'm fine with Jesus. I can't do the things that Jesus asked me to do. I can't follow in that way. Because if I do, I'll lose my job. I can't do my job and do these things. That's not the way my world works. There are different kind of obstacles that keep us from following Jesus. It's not simply give away everything you have. Whatever is preventing us from doing what God is asking us, calling us to do, becomes an obstacle to us receiving the blessing that God wants us to receive. What must I do? Are you prepared for the answer? Are you prepared to give an answer? And how committed are you to your answer? We make all kinds of pledges and commitments that we very easily renege on. Uh, Political season that we're in, uh, every candidate, as you probably uh, have heard in the news, was asked a, a same question that they were asked months ago. Will you support who's ever nominated? This is Republicans now. Will you support who's ever nominated by the party? All of them several months ago said it didn't make any difference who the nominee was. We're going to support him. This time when asked the same question, uh, all of them indicated that they were not uh, 
completely comfortable with that question. In fact, one of them said you shouldn't even ask that question. Are you committed to your answer? Here's the deal. I've been, of all the weddings uh, that I've done, and, and quite frequently I will use uh, pre-marriage awareness inventory. And there are like a hundred and something questions in this thing. And it's the idea is for the, the, uh, the two spouses to kind of see what they, they actually do know about each other. Have they discussed some things that need to be discussed? But there's one question that over the years that I've been giving this uh, survey, this inventory, and the bride and groom take that separately, there's one question that they always answer the same. I've never had it answered. Uh, I've never had disagreement on this. The answers have always been the same answer. I've never had anybody go down to B or C or D options. It's always been the A option. The question regards fidelity in marriage. And the A option, the A answer is, uh, the question is, how important is fidelity uh, in marriage to you? And A is absolutely, you know, uh, essential. It's important. And everybody has always answered A. Every time. Every time. But the unfortunate, unfortunate reality as marriage, as life unfolds, is the number of people... uh, who violate that promise, that which is absolutely essential. If it's absolutely essential, how in the world can you violate that? Are you committed to your answer? Well, Peter's asked and is answered on all kinds of questions. He's asked to do things or ask if he can do things. In Peter's confession, Jesus says, who do you say I am? He said, you're the son of God. And then Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and go to the cross. And then Peter, who just said, you're the son of God, that you would think would be uh, very meaningful. There'd be some authority that would be attached to that. As soon as Jesus says, Son of Man must suffer many things, he must go to the cross and die, Peter says, well, no, no, we're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. We're not interested in that right now. That's not going to happen. That's where Jesus says, well, get behind me, Satan. Peter gets out of the boat when Jesus calls him out of the boat. He walks around for a couple steps and sinks. If you tell me to come out here, I'll come. And he looks around and realizes that probably wasn't the best idea in the world. And and he begins to sink. And then he cries out, Jesus, save me. And Jesus lifts him. At the Last Supper, Peter says, "Uh, I'm not going to betray you. I don't care what happens. I'll follow you. If you're going to the cross, I'll go with you. I won't betray you. That's not going to happen. Even if everybody else leaves you, I will stay with you. I'm with you to the end. Let's take the field. All the other disciples say, yes, none of us will leave you. 
Let's charge out there. Let's win the victory. Let's do whatever we need to do. And then when the moment of truth comes, they all leave. How committed are you to the answer? Are you prepared to give an answer? When Jesus says, follow. Okay. Yeah, good. What's your commitment? How do you follow through with that? Well... I believe, again, that the man who came had good intentions, and I think he was sincere, at least at the start. But sincerity is not enough. There are promises to keep. There are commitments that need to be made. There's a clip from a movie that we're going to show, The Pledge, where uh, Jack Nicholson has made a promise to a mother who's lost a child. I promise you, that I will find the person who did this. Regardless, I will find that. And he gets in an argument with his uh, captain of police about that. And here's the response that Nicholson makes to his uh, captain regarding that promise. I made a promise, Eric. You're old enough to remember when that meant something. If you catch that, you're old enough to remember when that meant something. In the church, we should always be old enough, regardless of how old we are chronologically, that promises mean something. And then when we make them, we should live out that commitment. Positive thinking is not enough. The, the power of positive thinking. The disciples say, well, this, this guy's got it made, and, and you know, if, uh, if he can't make it, who can make it? This is the kind of positive thinking, this is the kind of positive person that we need to have as a part of our, our uh, discipleship team. And positive thinking isn't enough. Yogi Berra, who uh, famous Hall of Fame baseball player, passed away last year. At one time, Yogi Berra was the most quoted person in, in the uh, United States, in the world. Uh, became almost as famous from, for the stuff he said as for what he did as a baseball player. Uh, on one occasion, he was playing golf with one of his buddies after he retired, and he was, uh, there was water in front of the, uh, the green to which Yogi had to hit, and before he got ready to hit the ball, he said to the guy he was playing with, I'm I'm going to hit it in the water. So I'm going to hit it in the water. And his friend, trying to encourage him, said, you need to be positive, Yogi. You need to think positively. And Bear paused for a moment and he said, okay, I'm absolutely positive. I'm going to hit it in the water. So, positive thinking is not enough. We have promises to keep. There's a recognition of who we are in relationship to God. Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the great thinkers in the 19th century, was asked the question, what's the secret to your success? Holmes replied, I learned a long time ago that there is a God, and it's not me. Uh, that I can't achieve everything that, uh, and do everything that I hope to do simply by doing good things, or what I think are good things. There's more that God asks of me in devotion and in calling me than simply 
good deeds. Now the disciples hear and see all this and they ask the question, well, if he can't be saved, this guy who's done all these good deeds, then who can? How can we be saved? And Jesus says, with mortals, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. And you've heard me say many times over the course of years that I've been here, uh, one of the most important uh, verses in Scripture, verses in Scripture, come from the 8th chapter of Romans, and it's this affirmation that's made to us, that absolutely nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's yours, revealed through, through Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do to earn that, and there's nothing you can do to throw that away. It's there. It's yours. You're God's children. Who then can be saved? Well, through our own efforts, it's not possible. To have the kind of relationship that we hope to have. And experience what we hope to experience with God. But with God, through God's initiative in Christ Jesus, all things are possible. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace, the amazing grace that we know through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the challenges that Scripture brings to us. And Lord, whatever obstacle that we have in our life that keeps us from being completely committed to you, whatever struggle we're in, Lord, we we pray that we would have the strength, the courage, your strength, your courage, your patience, your persistence, so that we can overcome those obstacles through your strength and draw closer to you. In Christ's name, amen.